you got a Bible, let's go to Matthew 7. We're going to be in verse 15 today. When I walked in and saw the animals on the stage, I kind of thought maybe I, I missed the passage. I should have preached on something different today, but actually it fits pretty well. Let me tell you an animal story to uh, get us started today. Uh, back when Kim and I were in college, uh, we were dating. I was living with my parents over in Ellendale near Bartlett, Bartlett Tennessee. And uh, the house next door to us always had a history of big dogs. I'm talking big dogs. We had a family there one time that had a, uh, had a wolf hybrid. And this dog was huge, huge dog. Well, that family eventually moved out, and another family moved in that had a big bull mastiff. And that bull mastiff's name was Bear. And he was a bear of a dog. He was a huge dog. If you've ever seen the movie Sandlot, it was like the, the, the dog Hercules on Sandlot, this massive dog that ruled his backyard. Every time we went into our backyard, we heard woof, 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 through the fence. And, and he, could, he could just about stand up and put his paws on the top of our six-foot fence in the backyard. Big dog. And that dog loved his family. It loved the three little kids in that family. It loved the two, uh, the two, the parents in that family. But man, that dog, if you were not part of that dog's family, that dog didn't really care much for you. He didn't like you at all. We would get barked at constantly. Well, one afternoon, so I, I decide I'm going to go, I'm about to leave to go pick Kim up for a date. And I don't even remember where we were going, but I walked out the door and as I walked out the door, I saw my, the little girl, one of the little girls that lived at the house, coming out of the front door of the house with Bear. And I thought to myself, this is, this is not good. And so I'm walking, so I kind of do a little kind of shuffle step get, to get to the car real quick because I realized this is a 40-pound girl trying to walk a 150-pound dog. This is not going to go well. And Bear does not leave his yard, and Bear did not leave the house. And so to see this dog coming out the front door, I thought, uh-oh, here we go. So I kind of shuffle my way, get into my, my car, my little Corolla I drove, and I crank the car, and I pull off, and I think I'm good. I think I'm okay. And then I look in the rearview mirror, and what do I see? Bear. <laughs> Running down the road, chasing my car down the street, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm just going to drive off. No big deal. This is fine. It's no big deal. I get to the end of the street, stop at the stop sign, look right, Look left, and when I look left, I, I see a kid in his driveway practicing roller hockey. And, and I see Bear still on my tail coming behind me. And suddenly at that moment, Bear turned the corner, and Bear's attention went from me to that kid. And so I'm thinking, here we go. This is not going to be good. So I did what any reasonable person would do. I stayed in my car. I, I pulled a U-turn real quick, and I started driving down the street uh, to go find the neighbor to tell the neighbor what's going on. And so I pull up to the house. She's coming out the front door at this time. I tell her, hey, your dog's down the street. You better hurry up. And she says, well, okay, at least he's not chasing anyone. And I said, well, actually he is. He's got this kid cornered down there. So I get in my car. I pull back down there. And I pull up kind of wondering, you know, what am I going to see left of this kid? He's standing there, and he is staring this dog down. He's standing there with his hockey stick. And he's just staring at him. And there's, there was probably a little wet spot on the concrete, not really sure. But this, this, this kid was just looking at this dog. And I rolled down my window. And I'm like, hey, kid, don't worry. The, the owner's coming. And at that moment, then Bear decides to come back toward me. And so I'm in this little car. And this dog is staring me face to face. You ever seen those movies where, like, the dinosaur is, like, fogging up the window of the car, like Jurassic Park? Well, it's kind of like that. But the dog is, you know. And so finally the owner pulls up. 
gets out, goes to catch bear. I think I'm okay. I pull out onto a four-lane road, and there goes the dog again, chasing me down the road. This dog was not going to let up. You know, the truth about dogs is that dogs can be quite friendly, right? I, I would agree with the great songwriter and pastor Jack Moore who sang the song, Thank God for Dogs. But I also would say that sometimes dogs can be quite scary. Sometimes they can be your best friend or sometimes they can attack. And the only way you can really know is to wait until they open their mouths. Well, back in Bible times, cities and towns had serious problems with wild dogs. These packs of wild dogs would roam through the towns and they would kill animals. They would dig through the trash. They would even attack people like wolves did. And so it came as no surprise, it comes as no surprise to us that to call someone a dog was not a compliment. You know, like sometimes you'll hear people say, what's up, dog? That, that's not a compliment in Scripture. Like when Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, verse 2, he says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. And he goes on in that passage to talk about false teachers, false prophets, those who would try to lead the Philippian church away. Well, interestingly enough, Jesus uses that same analogy, except for this time he talks about wolves in Matthew chapter 7, verse 15. And so this morning, I want us to look at this passage in Matthew 7, verse 15 through 20, where Jesus talks about the, the danger of false teachers. In verse 15, he says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thorn or are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thorn bushes? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. I think the first reality we must face here is that Jesus, by giving us this warning here, Jesus is saying there are going to be false teachers. That there are those who seek to mislead us, who seek to take us down a path that leads us away from Christ. 1 Peter 5.8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And until Jesus comes back and sets things straight, as long as Satan is on the prowl, there will be false teachers who will seek to ensnarl people, who will seek to lead people away from Christ, many of whom will use the name of Jesus, many of whom will claim to be Christian, will claim to be from God, but who, whose goal is not to lead them to God, but who are being used by Satan to lead them away from God. Jesus tells us here that these, these people are deceptive. He said they, that, that they are in sheep's clothing, that they come in sheep's clothing. They look gentle, they look kind, they look, they look good, but he says they're dangerous. He says they're inwardly like ravenous wolves. That though these people look nice, though they look kind, though their words sound great and encouraging, that in fact they are like ravenous wolves. Not everyone who uses God's name is friendly. Not everyone who sounds Christian is genuinely Christian. And Jesus is telling us here that these false teachers are not to be overlooked. They're not to be seen as harmless. They're not to be thought of as just, oh, you know what, don't worry about them. But instead that they're leading people astray. 
I got to thinking about the Old Testament and the times when false prophets would come up in the Old Testament. And there's a pattern that, come, that goes through parts of the Old Testament in that, in that when a true prophet of God would arise, that at the same time false prophets would arise alongside them. Like, for instance, in the days of Jeremiah, uh, when a true prophet would arise, oftentimes with the call to go and to preach the need for repentance, to preach the, the coming judgment, to declare that God is not satisfied with the sinfulness of Israel. When that true prophet would come forth, you know what happened? A false prophet would arise and would say just the opposite. And would say, you know what, everything's okay. You're, all is going to go well with you, king. All is going to go well with you, people. Just keep doing what you're doing. You don't need to change. We could really call them feel-good prophets. They, they, they seem to have a message of encouragement when they needed to have a message of reprimand, when they needed to have a message of judgment. Jeremiah 8.11, God describes these false prophets like this. He says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And in Jeremiah 23, 17, it says that they, those false prophets, say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, that it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. Now, there are, without a doubt, in, in today's time, those who might hold the Word of God in their hands when they stand up and speak and stand up behind a pulpit and speak, but who fit that mold of a feel-good prophet. They don't preach the full gospel as declared in Scripture. They shy away from the sinfulness of man because they don't want to offend. They don't want to hurt feelings. They don't want to make anyone angry. They want to be more politically correct. They believe, you know, just have enough faith and God's going to bless you with wealth and prosperity. It was Martin Lloyd-Jones that described these people by saying that there's no narrow way in their preaching. You know, there's no, this, it's not a coincidence that this passage comes right after what Jesus said, what we studied last week, where he said that you have to enter by the narrow gate and the way is hard and few who find it who find eternal life in Jesus. But the wide gate is comfortable and it's popular and many will find it. It's the good life that these false prophets preach, preach a wide gospel. They say, you know what, you don't have to change anything about yourself. You can just be you. You can just do your thing. You can be sinful. It's not that big a deal. Sin's not that big a deal. It's not that bad. Just be however you want to be and God's just going to lovingly overlook everything. It's a wide gate preaching. 2 Timothy 4, Paul describes these false teachers as being those who tickle the ears of the people who listen. They give them what they want to hear. They don't tell them the hard news. They just make them feel good. They, they, they convince them that they're basically good and that they don't really need a Savior. Many of these false teachers masquerade as Christian. Um, well, I would say that also many of them are op quite open about the fact that they're, they're not Christian. But, but they oftentimes look good on the outside. They, they sound good. They, they look nice. They behave nicely. They, they seem good and moral and law-abiding. But here's the thing. Just because someone is good morally doesn't mean that they're good with God. Doesn't mean that they're godly. Doesn't mean that they're Christian. Our problem is not that we just need to be good morally. Our problem is that we need to be righteous. That only comes through Christ. Take, for instance, these billboards. I don't know if you've seen some of these billboards before. Um, it's a group called PassingOn.org. Don't much like quitters, son. Grit. That sounds like a good message, right? Or, or the next one. What makes us great? Unity. Pass it on. That sounds like a good thing to say, right? Or how about the next one? Eat flies, dates a pig, Hollywood star. Live your dreams. 
That, that sounds good, right? These, these are all nice and encouraging. Or I think there's one more, I believe. Is there one more? Started a nonprofit at five, fed 20,000 so far service. That sounds like a great message, doesn't it? You know, this, this group, Pass It On, has all kinds of commercials on TV. And I got to wondering about them when I first saw them. Because, you know, they sound good. They sound like, oh, man, these must be Christians. They're encouraging good things. They're telling people to be good. But then I got to looking at their website. And this is what it says. It says, we believe people are basically good, but sometimes just need a reminder. Now, let me tell you, that's a false gospel. The objective of that group right there, it's called the Foundation for a Better Life, is to convince people that they are basically good. They just need a reminder. I don't know if you've read the Bible, but if you have, you would probably notice that people are not basically good. In fact, Romans says that none is good. No, not one. Jesus said that there is none good but God alone. And our problem is not that we just need to remind, a reminder on how to be good. Our problem is we need Jesus to make us right. We need, we need Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection to set us right. And so we don't just need reminders. We need a Savior. But, you know, that's a group that openly identifies as being not Christian, but I would say that there are many who stand behind pulpits of very large churches whose services are broadcast across the globe, who sell millions and millions of books, but who teach a false gospel, who teach a, 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 a gospel, a, a truth, uh, their version of truth, that doesn't line up with what Scripture says. Take, for instance, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. They call themselves a church. They have the name Jesus Christ in their name. They use many of the same terms that we do, right? That they, they claim to be the true church. I mean, and in fact, if you've ever had a Mormon for a neighbor, you know what you will find? They are great neighbors. They really are. They're super nice people. They're, they're, they're tremendous morally. They're, they're generous. They're, they, they have well-behaved kids. I've never met a Mormon family that had bad-behaved kids. They're faithful to their spouse generally. They're good workers. They're ethical. They have all this morality working for them. And if morality got you to heaven, man, they would be there. But they believe in a false gospel. They have bought into lies and their preachers preach lies. And it's a false truth. They substitute what the Bible teaches as the true way to heaven. For, they, give, they put something else in its place. And so how do you know a false teacher? How do you know when someone is not someone you should listen to? When, when someone is following the wrong path? Look in verse 16. Jesus says, you will recognize them by their fruits. You will recognize them by their fruits. You know, a tree cannot hide its identity for very long, can it? I mean, you could walk up to a tree in the woods in, in the dead of winter when all the leaves are falling off of it and there's no fruit on the tree. And you might be able to look at that tree if you're, if you're like me and not like a tree expert. Um, you know, if, I'm not a tree expert. If I walked in the woods and I saw all these trees with no leaves on them, I would have a hard time identifying what kind of tree was what. I mean, unless it's like a pine tree and it's very obvious, I probably would just look at it and say, well, that's a tree, <laughs> you know. I really wouldn't know the difference. But you know what? A tree is going to show its identity very soon. That's called spring. And when spring comes and that tree begins to produce leaves and if it's a fruit tree begins to produce fruit, guess what? You suddenly realize what kind of tree it is. And the same thing goes for when it begins to produce leaves and fruit. You also begin to see, is that tree healthy? 
Is that tree diseased or is that tree dead? Time and examination will tell. Jesus said, you will recognize them. And if Jesus, by saying that, if that's true, what Jesus says here, that we will recognize them, it also means this, that there must be some way, there must be some standard of truth by which we can judge whether someone is speaking the truth or not. You know what that standard of truth is? It's all we need. Before we can ever know the false teacher, we have to know the truth. That if we want to know if someone is teaching us rightly or teaching us falsehood, we need to be people, students of the truth. It's sort of like those whose job, their task is to identify counterfeit dollar bills. I mean, there could be hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of different variations of counterfeit bills, right? I mean, it could be endless, And so a person who was trying to identify counterfeit bills, they could set about trying to learn every single form of counterfeit bills, and that could take them ages, and they may never be successful at it because they might learn one, but then the the next counterfeit might be something different. But they could do one thing, which is to learn the true bill, to look at a real 20 and to learn every characteristic about the real 20. And then what happens when they see a fake one? They immediately know something is not right because a real $20 bill has this marking on it, has this little stripe in it, has this little hologram, whatever it is. By knowing the truth, they can then know the falsehood. And so the starting point for us to know what, if, a, if a teacher, if a person, if a church is false or true is, is to be a student of the Word. It's to know the Word, know the measuring stick. To, to read it, to study it, to hear it taught, to discuss it with others. And when we do so, what happens is we become like the Jews at Berea, who we read about them in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. It says that these Jews were more no, noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And so Paul came along, declared the gospel to them, but they didn't just take Paul at his word. They didn't just believe what Paul said just because he said it. No, they believed it because they searched God's word to confirm it. They didn't just listen to the man. They said, let me take his words and let me measure it according to Scripture. And if it's true, I'll believe it. But if it's not, well, then I'm going to let it go to the side. And so Jesus mentions here fruit. He says, we'll know them by their fruit. And I think we can see fruit in two different ways. There's the message and there's the character of the person. I mean, first and foremost, when we, when we want to know if someone's teaching truth, we need to ask ourselves, we need to ask, is this person teaching something that lines up with Scripture? We have to know the Word and then test their words by God's Word. Now, it's generally pretty easy when it's a person, when it's a group, um, that is a world religion that is not Christian, doesn't claim to be Christian, Hindus, Buddhists, Muslims, groups like that. That's, that's kind of easy to differentiate. We know they're not Christian. Okay. But, but you know, the ones who claim to be Christian but who aren't genuinely, they're a little harder to spot, I believe. And oftentimes they are because they use a lot of the same words. They, they talk about Jesus. They say salvation. They talk about having faith, about going to heaven. They use a lot of the same terminology, but the words they use have different meanings. You know, I mentioned the Mormon church a minute ago. Well, they're not the only false church in America um, who parade as Christians. But we would call these groups, we would call them cults. I know it's kind of a weird word. Some people, you hear the word cult, and you immediately think of David Koresh, Waco, Texas, 1990s, right? Or you think of Jim Jones in the 1970s. 
uh, and those were cults. But when we use cult in the church, we're referring to groups that claim to be Christian, but who deny basic foundational truths and teach falsehood. That's what a, a, a religious cult is. They claim to be Christian. They claim to be a true Christian church, but they, they reject orthodoxy. They reject basic beliefs. And so here's how you can know. Here, here's a test you can take. I, I learned this um, back when I was in seminary, back in like 2005, Dr. Stan May, Mid-America. He taught us what was called cult math. All right? This is how we can test it. It's as easy as addition, subtraction, multiplication, division. All right? A group is false if they fail one of these tests. Addition, they add to the Word of God. Whether it's with their own books, the Book of Mormon, Watchtower, the Jehovah's Witnesses, they have their little Watchtower um, magazine thing. They add to the Word of God with their own translations that have been specially translated to fit their theological positions like the, uh, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses Bible. Um, or maybe they have their own prophet who declares the Word of the Lord and they hold that prophet's Word to be equal with the Word of God. If they do that, they're a false church. Secondly, subtraction. They subtract from the personhood, from the godhood of Jesus or from the Bible. They deny that Jesus is God. They, they, they say he's just a man who became a god or a man who became a Messiah, but they deny that he is, was, and always has been God. They deny the Trinity. They deny hell. They deny parts of the Bible. They deny key doctrines like the sinfulness of man, the sinlessness of Jesus, salvation by grace through faith alone. Multiplication, third thing, they multiply the requirements of salvation. These groups always believe in, generally always believe in salvation, that salvation comes by grace or by faith plus something else. You've got to believe in Jesus, plus you've got to be a member of our church, plus you have to be baptized, plus you have to do this, plus you have to do these particular works, plus you have to give this certain amount of money, plus you, and if you don't do that plus, well, then you're not really saved. You're, you're lost and you're going to go to hell if they even believe in a hell. And most of these groups believe that salvation only comes through their church alone. Now let me tell you, uh, we believe as Baptists, I believe as a pastor, that there are many Christians who do not identify as Baptists. There are many Methodists who love Jesus. There are many Presbyterians who love Jesus. There are many Pentecostals who love Jesus. We could continue going. If they agree with the faith that salvation comes by grace through faith alone, and we could go through foundational doctrines. If they believe with those foundational doctrines, I have no problem saying to that person, I know you're a brother in Christ. We may not worship together. We may not be in a church together, but I believe you're a brother in Christ. But these groups, these people multiply things. And they say, well, you know, salvation comes through Jesus, but you also got to do this. Lastly, division. They divide loyalty between their earthly leader, between the organization, and between God. In other words, they put someone on the pedestal some earthly leader, and say, this person is God's representative. They're like the prophet, and they have equal authority with Scripture, with God. And we have to listen to them, and sometimes they're going to say things, and we got we got to believe it more than we believe God. Well, because we have the measuring stick of Scripture, we can test these things. We can test these groups to know if they're true and false based on what they say. But Jesus said that we could also hear, I believe, we can judge these groups, we can judge these teachers by the fruit of their lives. John chapter 15, Jesus talks about how true disciples will bear fruit. 
And he gives this illustration of a vine and branches. And he says, he is the vine, we as believers are branches. And that as Gentiles, we've been grafted into that vine. And that the life of the vine will come out in the branch. That as a believer, we will bear fruit. We will bear a godly life because we can't help it. We can't help but have the life of the vine come out through us. You know, along the way, we might cross paths with teachers, with preachers, with evangelists, with authors who say all the right things. They, they, they have all the right words. Their doctrine just seems just really good, and they say something interesting, and we get, really, we, we get really caught up in it. But underneath that slick veneer, something's off. They don't, they don't display the fruit of the Spirit. They lack humility. Instead, they're prideful. It's not about God's name and God's kingdom. It's about their name. It's about their brand. It's about their kingdom. They're forceful. They're arrogant. They may lack generosity, compassion. You know, a man can make his way appear good and right for a season, but eventually the tree's going to become known. Eventually, Jesus says, you'll see the fruit of his life. And he says, you can know them. I read a story this week about a, a, light, a lighthouse that was built in Australia back in 1857. And it was famous only because it wrecked more ships than it saved. Because it was built in the wrong location. And so these ships would come into this, to this bay and they would see this lighthouse. And instead of being put in where it should have been, it was put closer to the quarry because the guy who built it wanted a shorter distance between the quarry. And so he put it here. And these ships would respond to where that lighthouse was thinking that they were safe. And instead they were doomed. They would wreck. It would sink. Christ warns us here because he knows the danger of false teachers. It wasn't until 1899 that that lighthouse was, was torn down because they realized the damage it was doing. First they just tried to shut it down and they realized that just shutting it down wasn't good enough because the moonlight would catch the stone on the lighthouse and the ships would see it there and they would still respond to it and they would still crash. So they had to eventually just lay it to rubble. Jesus is warning us here because he says false teachers are not just something that, you know, are just harmless or whatever, but he's saying that they lead people astray. And he says here that eventually they're going to be cut down. Every tree, verse 19, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the sad news is that many of their followers will go right with them because they bought a false gospel, because they believed a lie and never trusted in the true, genuine gospel of Jesus. Would you pray with me? As we come to a time of invitation this morning, I, I know that we hear a, a sermon like this, a passage like this, and we think, okay, I, I think I'm good. I, I'm, I'm at a good Bible-believing church, but sometimes we allow voices into our lives, into our minds that, that are false. Authors, preachers, ideas come into our mind that are false prophets. They're like wolves in sheep's clothing, and they set up shop, and they begin to lead us astray, and Maybe there's something that you bought into that is contrary to Scripture that, that you need to uh, um, quit following, quit believing, and go back to the Word. Maybe today you know someone who's in a false church. They're being led astray. Maybe your heart's burdened by them, for them, and you need to pray for them today. Pray for their salvation, pray for their deliverance. 
God led us to this passage today. We've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount week by week, verse by verse, and I don't think it's any coincidence that we come to this passage right before we embark on vacation Bible school in which we're trying to teach children the truth of God's Word, the truth of who Jesus is. I think that's God's timing, a reminder to us that we have to be a lighthouse, a lighthouse of truth in the middle of the darkness. This passage not only warns us of false teachers, but it reminds us to be true teachers, to declare the truth in the middle of the dark, even when it's unpopular. Maybe there's some commitment or decision that needs to be made along those lines today. Father God, we pray right now as we come to this time of invitation that if there are decisions that need to be made, if someone needs to surrender their life to Jesus Christ for salvation, Today would be that day. Father, maybe there's someone on our hearts right now that is lost and they're, they're following a lie. I pray that we would commit ourselves <coughs> to pray for them daily, to reach out to them in love. God, whoever those individuals are, I pray that you would make a divine appointments so that they might hear the truth and that their hearts would be softened and respond. Father, have your way with us at this time of invitation. May your spirit move among us. And it's in Christ's name we do pray these things. Amen. Would you stand as we sing?